Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Thanks, Shirley. Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, my name's Sean. I'm the lead pastor here, the teaching pastor here for Redemption Peoria. If I don't know who you are. Um, I'm going to be over here. I'll be camped up over here after service. So come up and say hi if we haven't met yet. Um, I'd appreciate it. Um, I want to share something with you guys that I thought was uh, really cool. I shared it with first service, and it hit me in worship. And it doesn't really have to do with the message, but um, I, think it's, I think it was just a moment. There's uh, some time where... Myself and the band and some of the elders, we get together and pray for um, just the service each Sunday. And in the prayer, Josh uh, Miles was praying, and he had prayed uh, Hebrews 2.11, that just our thankfulness that Jesus is associated with us, or considers um, the fact that he took the moment to consider the fact that Jesus calls us brothers, that we are associated with him. And um, it hit me, it struck me at first, I stopped listening to his prayer at that point, because I started doing this imagery um, in my head, and it was really bizarre imagery, and where it came from, was I remember in high school, once I got saved, uh, um, I started bringing some of, like, my friends to church, and they, like, totally didn't fit in. Um, so not only did they not understand the church lingo or any of that, they were, like, the guys, like, in the middle on Sunday morning, they would, like, raise their hand to, like, ask a question. I'm like, put your hand down right now. Um, like, that, they were just that guy, right? And there was this, you know, I'd bring them to our little, we had cell groups when I was in high school, and, you know, I'd bring them to this, and they just, it's, their sin was just out there, and it's somewhat embarrassing at times, like, to, to kind of just be associated with them, but I was glad that they were coming with me, and um, that imagery, like, made me think, and I know this sounds crazy, but immediately what I thought, and I know that these false gods don't exist, but I, like, pictured Jesus in, like, this round table, kicking it with, like, Buddha and the Greek gods. Again, I know they don't exist. This is just some heresy I'm spewing out real set for a quick second. Um, that here's Jesus, and, like, we're sitting there, and we're kind of just, like, chewing with our mouth open at this table and like, and they're like, and Buddha's like, dude. And Jesus is like, nah, he's with me. And, and it was crazy. Cause I, I just made me think like Jesus, we are Jesus's people. We represent him everywhere we go and we are terrible at it a lot. And yet he still is like, no, no, they're, they're with me. Like he's not ashamed. Like the way I brought my friend and what hit me during worship and first service was Unfortunately, as a pastor, I think of things that I want to communicate collectively. And man, it just hit me like, like, I'm that guy, you know? I'm, I'm the guy coming to church that's embarrassing to Jesus, but he's not embarrassed by me, you know? Like, 
Like, he, he's not ashamed, even though how much I've screwed up this week, he's not ashamed to call me his brother. Like, to associate, like, no, 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 no. Like, Sean's with me. Like, and I just, it just hit me. And I just, for whatever reason, I, I wanted to, I didn't think it was going to get me emotional in the second service again, but it really hit me first service. Like, wow, um, something to think about. Has nothing to do with our passage. I just thought I'd go charismatic for a moment. Um, Acts 15. Um, let me catch you up if, if you don't know how we got where we are, what surely came up in red. Um, we're going through this big book, Acts. Uh, it's 28 chapters long. And it's the story of the early church. It's the story after Jesus leaves, this earth, leaves the earth and he tells his people how to operate, just how he's rolling, right? How Jesus, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, is operating. And so we followed this and how he's operating with Peter and Stephen. And now we're following for the rest of the book. Um, we're actually going to see Peter again, but he's not the main point of the story. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, we've been following them. And so what we ran into last week is as the gospel's been moving, the first time ever, the gospel found itself in a place that is non-scriptural, meaning it went to a place that serves Greek gods, has nothing to do with Jewish ideology. And as they arrive on the scene, um, they, they see Paul and Barnabas as they, they see this man who's paralyzed because his feet um, are, are, have been messed up from birth. They pray for this man. He rises up. He starts walking. The people lose their mind. The people in the city, they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know who Yahweh is. They know their Greek gods. And so they associate this miracle with what uh, Paul and Barnabas are doing. And they actually call Paul and Barnabas uh, Zeus and Hermes. Okay. And I explained that last week. Well, in that moment, Paul and Barnabas lose their mind. They rip their clothes and go, this is not okay. And, and what I tried to lay out what Paul and Barnabas were doing in that moment is looking at them going, you're following false idols. You're, you're, you're continuing to lean into this area of sin and it's just killing you. And I'm telling you to repent and believe on the living God who has purpose. Okay. And so that's how we laid some of that out. The reason that's important is all of these Gentiles are coming to faith. And, and Paul and Barnabas' Paul and Barnabas's mantra has been, you need Jesus, you need grace, and grace alone. Yet, here he is in a, uh, surrounded by people that he's telling, you need to turn from your sins. It's not okay to do that. So, so in one moment, Paul and Barnabas are saying, listen, stop sinning. In the next moment, he's going, well, all you need is Jesus. Now, there's something that uh, um, I've seen since planting the last two and a half years that I think can set this idea up really well. Um, There have been moments where people don't like how loud our music is. And yet, on the same Sunday, people have actually asked, could we make the music a little louder? I think it's easier to sing. Same Sunday. Like, you're all crazy. Um, Okay? There's some times where I know me personally, and we've heard like, well, we need more security around children's ministry. And then someone's like, well, it's too secure, right? And someone's like, I don't know how to win here, right? There's no matter what we do. And I know me personally experiencing this firsthand is... um, Man, when we were at the Pure Performing Arts Center, there was a Sunday when we were going through Titus where a man came up to me and he said, so people can just do what they want? People can just do what they want. You're telling me that, that you know, we're saved by grace and they can just kind of live their life however they want, right? The next Sunday, this lady comes up and just berates me because she feels like I'm telling her, it was her and her husband how it started, and her husband started with, I kid you not, so you don't think I'm saved. So you don't think I'm saved. You're telling me I have to do all these things to be saved. And I'm like, what? You, you just, what? Okay, like, if I can just meet, have you guys introduce each other, because you'll see how crazy you are. There's like this moment where it's like this, this tension of, well, you just preach this grace and it's so free, right? And Bonhoeffer would be pissed about the whole idea. And then there's this other side that we kind of look at this whole thing and go, no, 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 you got to do things and you got to, you got to, you got to, right? And, and here's what I would say. I know this sounds crazy, but I think that's a really good biblical tension to live in. I, I, would, I would consider that a win. I think what the Bible does is it presents this idea that we truly are saved by grace and grace alone, and yet 
works are always going to follow that grace. And the language that I've tried to use over and over and over again, it came from D.A. Carson, not myself, that grace is necessary. So hear me when I say this. There's nothing you can do. Following all the rules, you go, cool, I haven't sinned. Cool, awesome. Grace is still absolutely necessary. You're still not getting in on your merit. Yet, at the same time, works are inevitable. So though grace is necessary, and if it's true that grace is necessary, works will always be a proper response to grace, okay? Now, that idea is the idea that we're going to try to unpack this morning. That idea is the tension that we're living in. The the idea that these people don't like the idea that Paul and Barnabas are preaching grace, that they think more should happen uh, than, than what's being said. So I don't have a map for you, but what happened is we have already gone through Paul's first missionary journey. He ends back up where he started, which is in this church called Antioch. Now, because all of these Gentiles have come to faith, these Pharisees, these Jewish men have been following where Paul's been going. Finally, Paul goes, this is ridiculous. And so he's got to travel down to Jerusalem to talk to the elders about what are we saying about this matter. Do men have to be circumcised or not circumcised? What's the issue? So let, let's read our text and let's get at it. This is what it says. Um, we're going to spend some, some time with just this first part and then the most of our time verses 20 through, 22 through 29. So this is what it says in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, literally in Greek, an uproar, and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So here's the question on the table. What do you need to do to be saved? That's, that's the, so, so take um, the little scenarios with our own church, people not being happy with you know, how loud the music is or children's ministry or the preaching or whatever it is. Now, I need you to broaden that out and I want you to understand within Protestantism, within the evangelical world, people who consider themselves Christian, across the board, there's these debates. So I got dudes who are in the church planning world who would say, we don't need children's ministry. Why would you do children's ministry? Guys who would say no instruments, right? We should only sing the Psalms, no clapping, which apparently we don't know what we are with that whole area. Um, but, but, but whatever it is, there's these things, right? There's this kind of like, well, this is right, this is wrong. I got dudes who are speaking in tongues and, and not speaking in tongues. And some think they're straight up demonic because they do. Some think they're not saved because they, they don't. And so there's these, these ways to process this whole thing. But, but here's the deal. If I go to my boy, Nate, who's in Corvallis, Northwest, um, in, uh, in Portland or in, uh, yeah, he's near Portland in Oregon. And I go to him and we're sitting there talking and someone comes up and goes, Hey, you guys have, you know, you're both pastors. Yeah. We, we do, we get it. Church, church, uh, uh, children's ministry. We're on the same page. Yep. We think we should absolutely have instruments. Totally. Yep. Let's make sure we clap. We're, we're totally in agreement. Yeah. We, we believe we got all these things. Cool. Cool. Yeah. What did you guys disagree on anything? Yeah. The only thing we really don't see eye to eye on is what really saves you. Nate, is that fair to say? Like you don't, I, I think what saves you and the way, but, but other than that, we're totally cool. No, that would be ridiculous because there's this line that eventually we hit that there's these intangible things that we can disagree on, but there's these formal things, right? And, and this has been classified in certain ways, um, like essential things and non-essential things, or, or maybe like close-handed issues and open-handed issues. Um, the, the idea was presented a couple years ago by a guy who said, if we can think of um, all of Christendom as this idea of a nation, that there are federal laws and there are state laws, meaning... The guy who says you should speak in tongues, we disagree, but that guy, I know he loves Jesus. He believes in the Trinity. He believes in the word of God as uh, uh, divinely inspired. Uh, He holds to grace alone is what we're about to break down, but we disagree on this tongues thing. 
So I would say federally, there's these big close-handed issues, these laws that we would say, listen, when you stop believing in these things, you're no longer a Christian. There are federal things, all the things, these close-handed issues. But then there are these state issues that we can disagree on, and it's okay. A federal issue, an essential, a close-handed issue, is how you're saved. Okay? That's a big deal. And so Paul and Barnabas are going to go down to Jerusalem because people are saying how you should be saved is different than what Paul and Barnabas are saying and how you should be saved. So setting that up, they're going to have the first church council to figure this out. What, what, what is the deal? Okay? Imagine if this goes another way. This would be all bad. Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and uh, Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Verse 4. When they passed to Jerusalem, they, uh, sorry, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. I love that, that language of what God had done with them, not just through them, but he'd done with them. Uh, verse five, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Everything I just explained. Verse seven, and after there had been much debate, Peter, so we know Peter from before in Acts, stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the, early, in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, hear this, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Um, Okay, let's do a little bit of um, work on this. Uh, On Monday night... um, our RC, our community that Vince was talking about, we went through the five solas. So I, I'm aware that maybe a lot of you don't know what the five solas are, but um, historically, specifically at this moment, but moving on all the way up to the 1500s, there was really one church, the Catholic church, which just means universal. And um, at that point, Martin Luther is kind of known, but there's a lot of guys around it, not just Luther, as taking that idea in a different direction. And what spurred this split or this reformation, this going from Catholicism to now what we know as Protestantism. So anyone who is follows Christ um, within evangelicalism that does not consider themselves Catholic is a Protestant. So you and I are Protestants. What spurred this split, Luther and guys before him, was these five solas, these ideas that there are these basic uh, tenets in which we got to understand biblically. Now, I'm not going to break all five down, uh, though I think they're super valuable. What's crazy is we hold to these tenets, these five solas, and two of them are mentioned in these passages, and we're not even really familiar as to what they are, what what are distinguishing factors. And sole fide is one of them, that faith alone. Grate is, is another one. That, that we are saved by faith and grace alone. That's it, right? That is what spurred the Reformation on. That is why you are not Catholic, honestly. And this is what Peter says. Let's Rolodex our mind. Let's look back for a moment. And, and here's what we could know. God has saved the Gentiles by faith and by grace. That's how he's cleaned their hearts. That's what he's done. So the statement is on the table. What we know to be true, grace is necessary. It's necessary. It's grace. Grace is necessary. But it's not done there because now Paul and Barnabas begin to, to share a little bit of what's going on in all of this. Um, and it says this in verse 12. 
And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them. I love this now through before it was um, with them. uh, Through them among the Gentiles. Verse 13. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with, this, and with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So let's stop real quick before we read what James is going to say. Here's what we got. James now stands up and goes, we've heard Paul and Barnabas. Experientially, this is what God's doing. I don't know what to tell you. We've listened to Peter. Historically, this is what God was doing. I don't know what to tell you. But here's what I do know. Biblically, it's agreeing with everything that they're saying. So he's going to quote Amos here. Uh, this is what he, he quotes. He ends up quoting uh, Amos chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. But just listen in verse 16. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind, in Amos it says, all of the nations, may seek the Lord and the Gentiles who are, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So he goes, what we know is we recognize that the mess that is Israel continues to flounder. God is going to use all of the nations and bring us all together under one banner, grace and faith alone. We can see this. So now this verdict has to be made. Like we've presented the idea. Now James isn't done in presenting his side because he has one last opinion. And this is what he says. After they had finished speaking, James replied with everything that he had just said. And then he goes, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Let's not trouble them with this. The law, let's not trouble them with the law. But unfortunately, there's a but. Verse 20, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he has, uh, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. We'll come back to verse 21, verse 22. Then let's listen to the verdict here. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas and Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers uh, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Caesarea and, uh, yeah, sorry, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with words, listen to this language, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Verse 25. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, we chose men and send them out to you with, oh, I'm sorry, uh, ran together. Verse 27, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit, okay, here's the Holy Spirit's verdict, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and Uh, to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from uh, what has been strangled and from sexual morality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. Farewell. Um, Let's stop there. We got a lot to unpack. There's the verdict, right? So here's the verdict. Um, And we've listened to it. We want to, we want Silas to tell you everything we're doing. Listen to Paul and Barnabas. These people who came out were unsettling your minds about this whole salvation thing. We want to set the record straight. And you don't need to follow the law of Moses. Unfortunately, um, we start to read this kind of like but again, as James said. So there's this moment where it almost feels like, hey, you don't have to follow the law of Moses. You don't have to do things, but here's the things you have to do. 
Like you don't need to be circumcised, but there's these other laws. Okay. Now for me to truly unpack this, I need two things. One, uh, I want us to put our thinking caps on because this is going to require a lot of uh, brain power to get in the depths of, and I think the work of the Holy Spirit to see what's going on because I think it's beautiful what he's trying to communicate here. But number two, let's first start with what he's not saying. He's not saying these requirements based on salvation. What he's not saying, and we can use the rest of the canon, specifically the New Testament, more specifically just the book of Galatians um, that Paul writes, that he is not saying that there are certain things that are required for your salvation. The the word required is an interesting word that ESV um, chose to use. This word required is uh, two Greek words that are smashed together, and, and it's into or fitting is the first part, epe, and what is necessary, okay? Like, it's, it's this idea of what is fitting, what fits into the spot that is necessary. Rightly translated would be like suitable. What's suitable for that situation? So um, you don't need a helmet to ride a bike, but if you're going to ride a bike, you should wear a helmet. It's suitable. It's necessary, like in that way. So yes, it is necessary, but it's not a have to, right? And the reason this is important in understanding is, is James is trying to communicate, or all the elders through the power of the Holy Spirit are trying to communicate this idea of there's something suiting, there's something that's suitable for the area or the, the, the place that you're in. Meaning this, okay? Here we go. Let's do this. Here we go. I'm going to do this as fast as I can. Let's start back from square one. You are saved by grace and grace alone. There's nothing you can do. We've, we've got it, right? There's nothing you can do. If that grace is as good as we see it to be in the Bible, if it is as beautiful as separating from the some 638 laws in the Old Testament, I don't have to follow. If it's so good that all the things you thought this week and all the things you're going to think this week that are outside of the confines of which God would want you to think, the actions you're going to perform that are sinful, the ways that you're loved, even though you don't deserve it, You're created image of God and you've chosen, we have chosen as humanity to go against God, to go away from God and still he draws us in. If the grace is that good, it should do something. So I did a wedding last night in Prescott for uh, Scott and and Tracy Carter. And when we got together, hear me when I say this, they're going to come together and we read these vows. And, And if Scott in that moment thinks his life is not going to be different, in lifestyle. He's crazy. Now he's standing at the altar and he's declaring his love. Tracy, I love you. I plan to be with you for richer or poor in in sickness and in health. I'm not going anywhere. I want to live out Ephesians 5 well. I want to do this well. Now that declaration, as he makes it, it's going to hit the road when he starts living with her, right? If he thinks that love is not going to change the way or reorient his life, He's wrong. And anyone who's married knows this, okay? Like, just, just give it a day and you're going, well, I used to be able to do that and I can't do that anymore, okay? Because what? And listen, it's not have-tos. It's, man, I love you. And this love is, is compelling me. I, I want to reorient my life around, like, what do we need to do together? Very visually, these two people are slowly fading away and becoming one person. That's what's happening. But hear me. If Scott makes these vows and from that moment does nothing with them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. Cool. Where are my boys at? Let's do it, right? Like, like if there's this declaration that from that moment on, as he moves on towards in this marriage and he continues on, but he doesn't live up to those vows, hear me, those vows are pointless. Dare I say they're dead. So I want to read something to you in James 2. 
And it's a passage you're probably familiar with, but it uses this idea of faith and grace. So I have to lay this foundation before I get ultimately what I think the the elders decided at this time in the book. And it's this idea that though uh, grace is necessary, uh, faith, or I'm sorry, works are inevitable. If you are saved, you will reorient your life around the thing that has saved you, that grace. You will. Because if, if you don't, you're not saved. Let me prove it to you. In Galatians 2, verses 14 through 26, I'm sorry, James 2, verses 14 through 26, this is what it says, and you're probably familiar with this. For the most part, if you grew up in church, you're familiar with like verses 14. You can look at it as we read it, 17, 20, but just let's read the whole thing. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith By my works, you believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them, um, sent them out by another way. Finally, verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also also faith apart from works is dead. So so let's, what did he say? What what is James saying here? Because if you know your Bible as well, you're going to immediately go to Romans 4 and like, how do these things go? This is what he's saying in this moment. There's a type of faith that is dead. There's a type of faith. There is, forget the word faith. There's a vow on your wedding day. There's a love that is dead. Like, like I'm showing it, I'm saying I have it, but that's not a lie. That's a, that's a dead love. That's a dead vow. You don't really love her. If you really loved her, you would do all the things that you vowed to do. Hence, it's a hollow dead vow. And yet in this moment, we see faith. There's a type of faith that is dead, and there is a type of faith that is alive. Now, we know verses 14, 17, and 20, but look at verse 22, talking about Abraham. You see that faith was active along with his works. Here's the money statement. And faith was completed by his works. Do you see that? Faith was completed. So grace is necessary. Grace is absolutely necessary. You're only saved by Jesus. But if you're saved by that grace, works are inevitable, bro. Like it's going to happen. The example that we've given in our circles before is if you're walking on the freeway, you get hit by a truck. No one just kind of stands up by, by a semi-truck going 80 miles an hour and goes, I'm good. No, your life will be forever changed, if not dead. So, so in this moment, we recognize if the grace is that good, it does do something. And if it's not doing something, hear me, you haven't received grace. You have a dead faith. You, you've declared dead vows. There's dead love. And so um, it doesn't end there because this is the frustrating part of sometimes the the text. Um, Ten days ago, we get together in a room. So every um, Wednesday, 
two Wednesdays before the Sunday that uh, a sermon is going to preach within redemption. All the lead pastors, the teaching pastors um, from all of redemption get together and we talk about the passage every single week. And as we got together, we began to like break down what, what's going on here and what's being said. And this is where the commentaries have been wildly beneficial for me because the same language that came up, the same phrase kept coming up in all the commentaries and came up in that room two Wednesdays ago. And it was this term table fellowship. Table fellowship. So we read these things. So does this mean these specific works that now I have to avoid things, strangled things? Does this mean I avoid things that uh, of blood? Is, is, what, what is this saying? And this becomes super confusing right now. Are you telling me I, I, because I'm saved by grace, now I got to follow all of the law? No, I'm not saying that. That word requirements, what is suitable for you, requires something in doing something, in changing your way, but there's a specific type of change here in this text. And here's what it has to do with. It doesn't have to do with sin as much as it has to do with unity. In this moment, there are people who are Christians. Well, they're not Christians, they're Jews. They're, they're people of God. And all these Gentiles are beginning to assimilate with all these people. And, and, and man, there's Pharisees who are looking, there's Jews who are looking and going, that, you're right, they're free, but that, that, that's not right. I don't like this. And, and, and so, so what the church does and what, what um, James does is he goes, listen, it's fitting for you to change. And here's the type I'm changing, I, I'm telling you to do. As you begin to sit down, and unfortunately, we associate food with like Chick-fil-A drive through get it in, get it out. But that's not what these dudes are doing. They, they, these guys are getting it in. Planning four to six hours, getting a good cab, smelling it like a rich person, right? Like they're, they're, they're getting it in. They plan to be in there for the long haul, good food. They want to laugh. They want to be with one another. And, and the elders see this. And the elders see this. So l- let, me, let me do my best to break down the, what could be missed ultimately what's being said here. Why these requirements are where they are. Um, it's not f- sinful at all for you tonight to roll in with your friends to Cobra Arcade downtown. It's not sinful at all. Now, I know what Cobra Arcade is because I'm cool, but maybe you don't. Cobra Arcade um, is a bar downtown that has a bunch of arcade games, um, and you can get a drink or whatever, right? I've only been once, I, and it was, I was street preaching to them. I'm like, no, I didn't. Um, so, so, I, um, so it would not be sinful at all, right? Like, uh, Candace and I went on a triple date with some friends, and, and we went in there, and, and, you know, we played games. I didn't drink because, you know, I'm a Christian, and we, we went in and, and, and did all this, right? Hear me. It's not sinful at all for you to go up to the bar and get a drink. It's not. And listen, like, there's some gymnastic origami type of stuff for some of us who grew up in the church saying that alcohol is a sin. I don't know how we got there. Um, Biblically at all, it's not sinful. Matter of fact, I can argue from Isaiah, hops were God's idea. He's like, enjoy, right? Um, There are certain Proverbs that you go, wait, give the fool alcohol? What are you talking about right now, okay? Regardless, not the point. I'm not trying to... Tell, tell everyone to go drink. Well, maybe I am. I, my, the point is, the point, the point is this, that, that, that it's not sinful at all for you to go have some hipster craft beer when you roll in there, right? It should be, but it's not, okay? So you go in and get your beer, right? But let's say this. Um, somebody from the church who's a new believer who associates all the wrong things with alcohol sees you. And they're just kicking it and like, hey, can I hang out with you guys tonight? And you go, yeah. But alcohol bothers them. okay. What is suitable, what is fitting in that moment is for us to understand that though you have the right to drink, that you would lay it down for your brother and sister. 
And in the same way, what Paul and Barnabas and the elders and James and Peter are going is, you can eat the food that's strangled by idols. It's not a sin issue. You think the sexual morality stuff would have been new to these Gentile churches? No. Like, Paul would have been preaching this over and over again. This has something to do with unity. It's okay that you eat this type of food, but, but, but hear me. If it affects your brother or sister, there's something wrong there. So, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I decided to read this in the first service. I was going to cut it out because of time, but I think it's worth reading. Listen to this. We have it on the screen. Um, I'm going to read verses 4 through 13. I'm not going to read all of it, but this is what it says. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. Let me give you the context here. So you're a Christian now. You know, so, so if you can, uh, this is going to be really difficult for us to understand. Imagine there's these false idols up here on the stage and, and you're coming up and you're offering food to these idols, right? And we would say it's not okay to eat those things or religiously, no, 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 don't, don't participate and don't be, don't be in with, with, with what they're doing with these idols, right? But as Christians, we get saved and we go, that's just, they're putting bread on, on a, on a stair, that idol's fake. I'll eat that bread, okay? Unfortunately, you are one of the people that used to offer food to that God. And so when you see me eat it, you're going, wait a minute, is that okay that, that I do this? Because you used to associate your former life with that. So he, that's, that's the direction he's talking about. Hear this though, verse eight, food will not can commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and we are no better off if we do. Verse nine, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You know what's crazy about this? You know who the weak is in this moment? It's the Jews. It's the Pharisees. The weak person in this is going, I don't like that they're eating these foods for the idols. That, but right? The weak person is, who is the religious person, which is a whole other side story. Verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple will not be encouraged. If, this conscious, if his consciousness is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother of whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and uh, wounding their consciousness when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will not eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So suddenly, grace is absolutely necessary and works are inevitable, hear me, you are free to do what you want to do. Yet at the same time, Galatians 6.2, James 2, Galatians 6.2 says that we are, we are set to the law of Christ. We are steadfast to the law of Christ. James 2 says we have a law of liberty that though you are free to do what you want, in this specific context, we're to lay down our rights. Hear me, not just for the sake of laying down our rights, but for each other. So you roll into Cobra Arcade, and one of the guys, let's say, let's say you're, you're drinking, and one of your friends rolls up, you're having a Sprite. You're having a Sprite. Let, let, let's go some, so I was a youth pastor for some years. Let's go some, some of these things because I think this has messed us up. Um, so let, let's talk like the swimwear, classic youth group swimwear, right? So at, like if you, are, if you grew up in church, you're going to a pool party, everyone's wearing long sleeves and pants, okay? At this, right? 
and I don't mean outside the pool, I mean in the pool, okay? Head covering somehow, I don't know, suddenly it's mandated, um, okay? So, so, like, you're not seeing anything, right? Now, you, if you grew up in church, don't like that those laws are suddenly, like, that's legalistic, you're applying something, I can wear whatever I want. Hear me when I say this, that's absolutely true, but let's fast forward the clock for a moment. Let's fast forward the clock and let's find ourselves as adults. So here you are as a woman and you're wearing something and a mature man in Christ comes up to you and says, hey, listen, I don't know what to say to you. I'm not trying to be that weird guy. But when you wear that, it makes me think of things that I want to do with, I should only want to do with my wife. Now, though you are free, women, hear me, you're free to wear what you want. You are. As long as you don't adorn your beauty in those things, according to 1 Timothy, you're free to wear what you want. But I mean, you're a slave in the instance to a brother in Christ, but Gentlemen, you're not off the hook, right? Because the reality is, men, we, we think we can flirt without repercussion. And, and let's say a mature woman comes to you and says, hey, listen, I'm not trying to be that weird girl, but it seems like you flirt with other girls and you kind of flirt with me and it makes me want to be with you and makes me want to, that I should only really want to be with my husband. And, and that's not okay. Now listen, nothing's wrong with flirting. Matter of fact, in first service, I almost made all the singles stand up and raise your hand and let's, let's have a little singles gathering right now, Okay. <laughs> But hear me, hear me. Um, but if it causes your sister in Christ to stumble, you lay it down. You lay it down. And though it feels like there's these requirements that these elders are adding to the church just randomly, no, 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 no. They're for the sake of unity. They're to bring brothers and sisters together because they're not just doing the quick Chick-fil-A. They're going to eat together. And the Pharisees are going to go, or the Jews are going to go, I don't like that they're eating pork. I know I'm free to. It's bugging me though, Right? In that moment, you go, I'm having chicken. Now, now, now here, the level of that you, can, you are free to do what you want because of grace, yet you're confined to the law of Christ, compels us to look at one another and hear me. I want you to flourish in your relationship with God. And if there's anything that would cause that to stumble, I don't want to do it. So let me say it like this, a personal example. Um, I joke is a lot about not drinking, but here's the truth. I don't drink. Um, all of our elders, they get plastered all the time. I don't. Okay. <clears throat> no, they don't. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, hear me, hear, hear me. I, I don't drink. Now I've wrestled a lot with why I don't drink. I don't know if it's religious, like when I got saved, a very like pharisaical environment that I was in and, and whatever it is, but here's what I, I've come to realize that I think why I still feel compelled not to drink. Um, because I want to preach a gospel that is free, that offers you to be able to enjoy wine, enjoy beer, um, as the way God intended it to be enjoyed. But there are some people that accuse me and have accused me of wanting to preach that you can drink alcohol because I want to drink alcohol. But hear me, if me not drinking alcohol means that we are free in Christ to enjoy what God has made, I'm willing to lay down that right. I'm willing to lay down that right. Now, listen, I, at this moment, I don't think there's, if I was to do any drug, it'd probably be laughing gas because it's the only thing I've ever done and I really want to do it again. Um, but, but hear me, even if I like, had, was compelled to, and there have been moments where I felt like for the sake of mission even, sitting down with somebody next door neighbors, hey, do you want a beer? And I know the moment I say I don't, they're kind of going, what, why doesn't he drink? I know that. But for the sake of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't. Now listen, hear me. I need you to enjoy alcohol I'm enjoying alcohol vicariously through you, okay? Do you understand? I'm not saying that that makes me better. I'm saying this is my specific call. There are things that I watch that you might not be okay with watching. There are things that I do that you might not be okay with doing, but hear me, within the law of Christ, Christ has compelled me not to, for whatever reason, his good purpose is to drink alcohol. 
Don't smoke cigarettes or cigars. And truth be told, we have elders who do do all those things. So to prove to you, it's not sinful at all. But for the sake of each other, oneness, I don't. And that's not always easy. I mean, believe me, after first service, how many people came up and said, well, where's the line? Like, so I, ha- I can't wear what I want. I can't, hear me. When we start to go down that path, we begin to reveal the wickedness of our hearts. That, that, that our Christianity is truly all about us. So to prove to you that it's not, I want to melee you with texts. I want to melee you with scripture so you understand how we've truly been called to one another. Okay? I think we have them on the screen, but if we don't, you're going to have to listen. Um, but I, I want to leave us, before I read this last passage, uh, to finish out our time together. I want, I want to leave us with, with these things echoing in our mind. The word of God echoing in our mind. How together... There are things we can do, but for the sake of requirements, the suitableness of being a Christian for one another, we don't do or do do certain things. Acts 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, hear this, and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Ephesians 4, 3, 3 through 4. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 12 through 27. I'm not going to read it all, but all of the members of the body, though there are many, are one body. So also in Christ for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We are all made to drink of one spirit for the body is not one member, but many. We are in this together. John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Colossians 3, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against one another, just as I, uh, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also uh, you should so also you should forgive them. You get what he's saying. First Peter one twenty two. Since you have an obedience to the truth and it's purified your souls for, for a sincere love of, of the brethren, fervently love one another from the hearts. John 15 verse 12. This is my commandment that you would love one another just as I have loved you. Romans 12. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Do you hear that? Give preference to one another in honor. Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law galatians 5 for you are called to freedom brethren only do not let your freedom uh, be an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another hebrews 13 let love of the brethren continue first peter 2:17 honor all people love the brotherhood fear god honor the king first john 4 7 and honestly i could read probably 45 verses from first john but i'll just read this one uh, beloved let us love one another for love for the love that is from god and everyone who loves is born of god and knows god galatians 6 2 bear one another's burdens oh yes bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of christ romans 14 13 therefore let not uh, let us not judge one another anymore but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way romans 15 15. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Ephesians 5. And be subject to one another. Be sub- you hear this, right? I'm reading the Bible. Be subject to one another uh, in the fear of Christ. Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitful of sin. And finally, Hebrews 10.24-25. Let us consider how to st- uh, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, hear this, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm not making these things up. This is the Bible to you. This is Scott and Tracy standing across each other, declaring this covenantal love that they are in it together. No matter what you do, if it's easier for you, I won't do it. Hear me. That's our relationship. 
a covenantal relationship between one another that if this causes you to sin, I don't want to do it. If this messes with you, I'm fine. I'm a slave to Christ. So here's where we finish with our passage. And if we didn't finish here, we would end up where some of you have grown hard-hearted towards the church. Truthfully, without this last part, we would find ourselves in in the same place, the same hard-heartedness of going, well, that's just a bunch of rules. You're telling me I have to do this or do that. But but there's there's something motivating all this. And here's what, what it says in the passage in verse 30, the last five verses. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were they themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with the many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had uh, sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also, which we'll pick up from next week. But I, I need you to hear that last part. So they deliver this letter, and at the end of the day, who is right? It's Paul and Barnabas. Those guys who've been trying to tell you that it's, it's works or it's, circum- it's not circumcision. That's not what it has to do. It doesn't have anything to do with that. And they begin to be encouraged. They're strengthened. This is, this is why this is such a big idea. They're reminded of what they already knew to be true. And without that reminder of this grace-based foundation, this idea that I'm safe first and this compels me to do something, it's all vanity. It's all pointless. We're, we're not serving God. We're serving ourselves. We're serving the church. We're serving man in some ways. No, hear me. Grace pushes us in the direction, and we're reminded of that. The reason I love this so much is because you're going to go to your neighbor or your classmate or your family member or whoever, and, and we have this word evangelism. You know what I love about the word evangelism? It's just the verb form of gospel, literally in Greek, euangelion. It's just a, so, so when you go to talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus, you're gospeling them. That's what you're doing. What's crazy about that is there's this first encounter to tell them about the goodness of Jesus, and yet we forget that we should be gospeling each other, constantly reminding each other of the gospel. And if that does what we think it will do, everything else will fall into line. But without that foundation, without that basis, to be gospel, to believe over and over, to be reminded why you're laying down your rights, and we're going to grow cold and we're going to grow tired real quick. Pray it wouldn't be the case. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for who you are, your goodness towards us. Um, we're grateful for this first council that, uh, Holy Spirit, you moved. You're very evident in that it seemed right to you. Um, that we would understand that um, you've called us because of your good grace. Peter's saying it in that, in that moment, that we are saved by grace, we are saved by faith. Um, that because of that, you, you push us in directions of reorienting, reorienting our life around that grace, around that good news. That it compels us, it moves us. So I pray for two types of people in this room. I pray for the person who hasn't received that grace because um, they've had situations in their life that they've had the, the works are inevitable, come before the grace is necessary. They've experienced man-made laws and not understanding where they're coming from. They've been forced to wear silly swimsuits or they've been forced uh, to, to say that they'll never drink alcohol or whatever declarations they've made. And because of that, they have this bad taste in their mouth of, of your good grace. And I would pray that they would have ears to hear, hearts to believe, minds to understand that we are saved 
we receive salvation through grace and grace alone. And then I pray for the person that's in here that's, um, well, to be honest, faith is dead. Pray for the person in here who's made the vows and says they follow you, but um, they haven't moved, they haven't um, acted, they have not reoriented their life around, and, and they're opposite, and not only do they not do those things, but they, uh, they don't really at times even want to, and I pray that, that their heart um, would truly fall in love with the fact that grace is necessary, grace is saved, and they are saved, and that does something like a love, that the love we see at an altar. Um, and then lastly, I pray for us as a church that the context that is shown to us now in this moment would reveal the depths of our own hearts, that there are moments where we don't want to lay down our rights for each other. But I pray we would. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd give us strength to do that, that we would see our lives in only unity with one another, that we not try to buy into the, the cult that is individualism at time that our society preaches, but we would know that we are all together, all one, all serving one another, honoring one another, giving our lives for one another. Thanks, Jesus, for leading the way in all this. We trust you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.